and welcome to the African American Hour. I'm Rosemary Anque, bringing you readings from the following publications. Good Morning America, The Grio, News One, The Root, The Community Voice, Associated Press, and Blavity News. The first article is titled, Mom of Three Who Gave Birth While Battling COVID-19 Goes Home After Nearly 100 Days by Katie Kindelan, K-I-N-D-E-L-A-N, Good Morning America, November 8, 2021. A mom of three gave birth while battling COVID-19 and spent nearly 100 days hospitalized while going weeks without meeting her newborn, is heading home. It's been such a long time, Sierra Chubb said Monday on Good Morning America. Each of my kids came up to visit once, but it's not the same. Sierra Chubb of South Carolina was hospitalized with COVID-19 in July while she was around 37 weeks pregnant. Just two days after she was admitted to the hospital, she had to undergo an emergency cesarean section because her pregnancy was in distress. She delivered her third child, a son named Miles, on July 26th, two weeks before his due date. While Miles was born healthy, Sierra Chubb's condition quickly deteriorated after his birth. She was put on a ventilator and then an ECMO machine, on which she stayed for nearly 30 days, according to her husband, Jamal Chubb, who became the sole caregiver for their three children and documented his wife's journey on TikTok. It's one of those things where you're living life and then all of a sudden everything feels like it's collapsing, Jamal Chubb said on GMA. At first, I started sharing the story on TikTok just because I wanted to update people because I kept getting a lot of text messages. And then it grew from updating to informing people on what I'm seeing with COVID firsthand and encouraging people to get vaccinated. Kind of took a life on its own, he said, adding that his family has received so many prayers from people around the world. In what Jamal Chubb described as truly a miracle, his wife's condition began to improve over the past two months. Sierra Chubb, who was not vaccinated when she was diagnosed with COVID-19, was able to walk out of the hospital on October 27th. She was cheered on by medical staff who lined the hallways to say goodbye. I had been there so long that I had gotten to know the nursing staff and the respiratory specialists very well. But I wasn't expecting that there were going to be that many people invested in my wellness, she said. It was incredible. Her recovery continued at a rehabilitation center, where she relearned everything from walking to writing until Monday when she was able to go home. I've been crying in the car all morning on the way up here, Jamal Chubb said, of his final drive from the family home to the rehabilitation center. It is just surreal that this is the last time I'll have to make this drive and she'll be home with our family. He said his wife's last words before she was put on a ventilator were, I'm coming back to my family 
and he put those words on his own social media so he could use them as motivation. That's the hope I held on to as you progress, Jamal Chubb said to his wife. It gave me hope every day to read it because that's what I knew you wanted to do. You wanted to come back. Sierra Chubb said she was amazed at how her husband stepped up as a single dad to their three children, ages seven, two, and nearly four months. Raising kids by yourself is just taxing, she said. When you get married, you are never expecting to have to do that part on your own. It's a partnership, and Jamal and I have always shared things equally. He's a very involved dad, so I think this jump for him versus maybe your average guy wasn't that big, but with me being sick on top of it has to be exhausting to say the least, she said. He's been a rock star the entire time. Friends have helped the family set up a GoFundMe page as Jamal Chubb has had to leave work to take care of his three young children. It is found on GoFundMe under Sierra, C-I-E-R-R-A, Abington, A-B-B-I-N-G-T-O-N, Chubb, C-H-U-B-B. This article was titled, Mom of Three Who Gave Birth While Battling COVID-19 Goes Home After Nearly 100 Days by Katie Kindelin, Good Morning America, November 8, 2021. The next article is titled, NCCU Program Aims to Increase Representation of Black Male Teachers by News One Staff, November 6, 2021. The focus on ensuring that students at public schools see themselves reflected in their teachers. The focus is on ensuring that students at public schools see themselves reflected in their teachers. According to JBHE, North Carolina Central University, the initiative, dubbed the Marathon Teaching Institute, was created to address the racial gaps in the educational leadership by empowering more African-American males to pursue careers in teaching. Although research shows black and brown students do better academically when they have a teacher who looks like them, Teacher shortages are plaguing public schools nationally throughout the country. Only 2% of teachers are black men. In the state of North Carolina, 43% of K-12 public school students are black and Latino. However, only 20% of teachers come from diverse backgrounds. Aware of the statistics and determined to ensure children of color have successful academic outcomes, the North Carolina-based HBCU launched the Marathon Teaching Institute. Through the program, participants are provided with an array of opportunities to advance their careers in education, including mentoring, networking, and enrichment seminars, all aimed at developing the next generation of impactful Black leaders who will shape the landscape of education. The Institute was also launched to encourage participants to enter North Carolina Central University's teacher education program. As I started digging into my research on non-cognitive behaviors, attitudes, and skills 
not measured on tests, I looked at how important it was to have a male figure or even a teacher throughout your K-12 journey. Roderick Heath, who serves as director of the African American Male Initiative at NCCU's Men's Achievement Center, told News Observer. Look at black males dropping out of school, the graduation rates. If we have some strong men in the building to curb some of these behaviors and even to give them a conversation, it's all about being relatable. News about the Institute comes nearly two years after Bowie State University unveiled a program designed to increase the representation of black male teachers in Maryland classrooms. This article is titled, NCCU's Program Aims to Increase Representation of Black Male Teachers by News One staff, November 6, 2021. The next article is titled, Megan the Stallion, Popeye's Gift Black-Funded Nonprofit with Six-Figure Donation by News One staff, October 31st, 2021. Megan the Stallion is known for paying it forward, and her latest philanthropic effort is centered on empowering a grassroots organization from her hometown. According to the Houston Chronicle, the music artist, whose real name is Megan Peep, recently teamed up with Popeyes to gift a nonprofit with a six-figure endowment. Founded in 2014, the organization, dubbed Houston Random Acts of Kindness, has a mission rooted in using kind gestures to practice empathy and compassion. Its founders, David and Trevia, T-R-E-V-E-I-A, Dennis, took the pain they've endured from losing loved ones and turned it into purpose setting out to inspire and empower individuals to lead with kindness. To coincide with the launch of the partnership she fostered with Popeyes, Pete and the food chain made a donation to the organization so that Trevia, David, and all of their advocates can continue their impactful work. The RAC organization always gives back, not only at the holidays, but throughout the year, Trevia said, in a statement, according to the news outlet. Thanks to the generosity of Meg the Stallion and Popeyes, we are now able to do even more in the community in Houston. All of our efforts will stay right in the city, and this year's Thanksgiving and Christmas events will be much larger and able to help so many more people. The funds will go toward providing support and resources for underserved children, individuals with disabilities, the elderly, veterans, and the homeless population. This isn't the first time the hometown hero has stepped up for the city of Houston in a major way. Earlier this year, she unveiled an initiative to help Houston residents who were significantly impacted by winter storm Uri. Through the efforts, she helped cover the costs of home repairs for senior citizens and single mothers. This article is titled, Megan the Stallion, Popeye's Gift Black-Founded Nonprofit with Six-Figure Donation 
by News One staff, October 31st, 2021. The next article is titled, What's in the Infrastructure Bill for Kansas? How did the Kansas House Vote? by Bonita Gooch, G-O-O-C-H, November 9th, 2021. The U.S. House cleared a $1.2 trillion physical infrastructure bill on Friday evening, and the bill is on its way to President Joe Biden for his signature. The Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act will deliver for Kansas from the largest long-term investment in our country's infrastructure and competitiveness in nearly a century. The need for action in Kansas is clear, and recently released state-level data, with the state suffering for decades from a systematic lack of investment in its infrastructure. In fact, the American Society of Civil Engineers gave Kansas a C-grade on its infrastructure report card. All Kansas House Republicans followed their colleagues in the Senate, Jerry Moran and Roger Marshall, and voted against the historic infrastructure bill. Specifically, the Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act will repair and rebuild our roads and bridges. Funding from the bill will focus on repairing and rebuilding roads and bridges with a focus on climate change mitigation, RAND safety for all users, including cyclists and pedestrians. In Kansas, there are 1,321 bridges and over 1,995 miles of highway in poor condition. Since 2011, commute times have increased by 6.6% in Kansas. On average, each Kansas driver pays $509 per year in costs due to driving on roads in need of repair. Based on formula funding alone, Kansas would expect to receive over five years. Based on formula funding alone, Kansas would expect to receive over five years $2.6 billion for federal aid highway apportioned programs and $225 million for bridge replacement and repairs. Kansas can also compete for the $12.5 billion bridge investment program for economically significant bridges and $16 billion of national funding in the bill dedicated for major projects that will deliver substantial economic benefits to communities. Improve public transportation. Kansians who take public transportation spend an extra 65.7% of their time commuting. Non-white households are three times more likely to commute via public transportation. 12% of trains and other transit vehicles in the state are past useful life. Based on formula funding alone, Kansas would expect to receive over the next five years, 272 million to improve public transportation options across the state, build a network of electronic vehicle EV chargers, 
the U.S. market share of a plug-in EV sales is only one-third of the size of the Chinese EV market. The president believes that this must change. Under the bill's allotment to invest $7.5 billion to build out the first-ever national network of EV chargers in the United States, Kansas would expect to receive $40 million over five years to support the expansion of an EV charging network in the state. Kansas will also have the opportunity to apply for $2.5 billion in grant funding dedicated to EV charging in the bill. High-speed internet connection. Broadband internet is necessary for Americans to do their jobs, to participate equally in school learning, health care, and stay connected. 15% of Kansas households do not have internet subscription. 2% of Kansans live in an area where, under the FCC benchmark, there is no broadband infrastructure. Under the Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act, $100 million is the minimum allocation Kansas will receive to help provide broadband coverage across the state, including providing 71,000 Kansans access to internet who currently lack it, 669,000 or 24% of people in Kansas will be eligible for the affordability connectivity benefit, which will help low-income families afford internet access, climate change, cybersecurity, and extreme weather events. From 2010 to 2020, Kansas has experienced 42 extreme weather events, costing the state up to $20 billion in damages. Kansas will expect to receive $25 million over five years to protect against wildfires, $14 million to protect against cyber attacks. Kansans will also benefit from the bill's historic $3.5 billion national investment in weatherization, which will reduce energy costs in families. Clean drinking water. Under the bill, this funding will be used to deliver clean drinking water to every American and eliminate the nation's lead service lines and pipes. Kansas will expect to receive $454 million over five under this portion of the bill. Improve our nation's airports. The United States built modern aviation, but our airports lag far behind our competitors. Under the Infrastructure Act, Kansas will receive $109 million for infrastructure development for airports over five years. Over the coming days and weeks, we will expect to receive additional information about the funding Kansas can expect to receive from the infrastructure bill. In addition, the values quoted in this article are estimates and may change based on updated factor data for each fiscal year. This article is titled, What's in the Infrastructure Bill for Kansas? How did Kansas House vote? By Bonita Gooch, The Community Voice, November 9, 2021. The next article is titled, Evanston, Illinois, Making History as Reparations Begin to Flow, by The Community Voice, November 9, 2021. 
This month, the city of Evanston, Illinois, will make history as the first city to pay reparations to its African-American residents. Proposals in March, after two years of research, proposals, and community meetings, Evanston City Council voted 8-1 to to launch a reparations program called the Restorative Housing Program. The application period began on September 21st, and this month, 16 applicants will receive $25,000 each in housing reparations. For about a century, city policies and laws confined most Black residents to an area called the Fifth Ward. Today, houses in this area are valued at half the value of homes just across the canal, the line that divided Black residents where only whites could live. This policy harmed Black Evanston residents, greatly impacting their family wealth. The restorative housing program may not eliminate the Black-White health gap in Evanston, but it will give some much-needed help to the city's historic Black families and their ancestors who are still suffering from the lack of generational wealth that resulted from these policies. To qualify, people must have identified as Black on an official document, be at least 70 years old, and have lived in Evanston at some point between 1919 and 1969. The program defines these applicants as ancestors. The children and grandchildren of Black people who lived in Evanston during that time period, called descendants, can apply for future payments. The money will not be given in cash, but paid directly toward a mortgage balance, down payment on a home purchase, property taxes, or to a home improvement contractor. The property must be in Evanston. The program is funded by a tax on recently legalized marijuana sold in Evanston. The first payments, totaling $400,000, are part of $10 million Evanston has pledged over a decade to begin repairing the damage caused by official city policies. This article is titled, Evanston, Illinois, Making History as Reparations Begin to Flow, by the Community Voice, November 9, 2021. The next article is titled, I Think I Had Almost Taken My Health for Granted. Track and field star, Allison Felix, raises awareness about what's driving our health by Leslie D. Rose, Blavity News, November 9th, 2021. Track and field superstar, Allison Felix, who recently became the most decorated athlete in the sport, has partnered with health benefits company, Anthem, to spread awareness about its new health study, What's Driving Our Health? that examines how Americans think about health and the social drivers affecting certain communities, certain communities. Social drivers of health, or SDOH, are identified as conditions in the places where people live, learn, work, and play that affect a wide range of health and quality of life risks and outcomes. Understanding that looking and even Feeling healthy 
could lead to false perceptions about health issues, Felix, who suffered preeclampsia, giving birth to her daughter, told Blavity that being the spokesperson for the study is important to her. I think I had almost taken my health for granted, Felix told Blavity. I went through my own personal experience. I'm an athlete. I'm healthy. This is a part of my lifestyle. And then I had severe complications giving birth to my daughter, and I never thought I would be in that situation. But there is so much more to it. There are so many issues that can look great from the outside, but just aren't the case when you really get into it. According to Anthem's findings, Americans overestimate how well they're doing health-wise. 85% of surveyed individuals reported having a healthy diet, while 77% reported being physically fit. However, these claims are in direct conflict with CDC's findings showing that 37% of Americans are overweight and many are not meeting healthy lifestyle expectations. Dr. Shantanu Agrawal, S-H-A-N-T-A-N-U-A-G-R-A-W-A-L, Chief Health Officer for Anthem, Inc., said he believes the root of this overestimation comes from previously viewing health through a more narrow lens. Typically, we think about health as a product of the medical care we receive, Agrawal told Blavity. However, we often don't consider all of the other factors that go into our well-being, particularly mental health, the safety of our environment, or our ability to consistently access nutritious food. By taking a narrow, more clinical health focus, it can be easy to view ourselves as healthy if we've avoided a major medical emergency and we feel well enough to go about our normal routines. It is clear to us at Anthem, however, that it is critical to take a broader approach to understand how factors like education, geography, race, mental health, and more impact our levels of whole health. The study broken into four themes, connecting the dots on whole health and its drivers, lived experience, equity and the perceptions of whole health, the impact of financial security, and consumer expectations for a healthier future, found that social drivers of health consequences are prevalent and disproportionately affect certain groups, including people of color. Such disparities include access to healthy food and medical care facilities, as well as affordability of resources and cost of living inequities per community. Many Americans, especially those in communities of color, are facing significant financial burdens. This financial insecurity and the limitations it can place on meeting basic social and health needs is a key driver of consumers' health, the report states. As such findings represent what some may call a generational curse, the data seeks to repeal the that's just the way it is mindset that people living amid the aforementioned conditions may possess. Felix understands that some may still choose to take that stance. I think I can definitely understand 
that mindset. And it can be a bit overwhelming. But I think it's more about having that conversation, she said. What really stood out to me are the things that we just don't typically associate with health. Transportation, air quality, and a lot of things that you're just born into. For me, that's very concerning and very alarming. These things are affecting communities at a different rate, especially in my Black community. I see that the social drivers are a real issue. She said she especially considered the impact to elders in the Black community who throughout the years have been able to influence the health behaviors of those around them. I was very much impacted by my elders and family members and their experiences, Felix said, while reviewing report data. I did think about the older generation and how sometimes I think findings like this may take them a little longer to wrap their minds around it. I think we get very set in our ways and we've done things for so long in a certain way that change can be hard. A huge part for me is the awareness and to be able to do something about it as well, she later added. Angrawal said, Anthem's next steps will include a series of conversations to influence change. Change will take action from all sectors of industry, community, and individuals, Angrawal said, while changes to key SDOH elements won't come overnight, we do not believe that the circumstances facing Americans are unchangeable. Change can come, and it begins with understanding the issues and developing programs that can bring about a meaningful difference. We hope that we can build momentum around this conversation and equip people with the right information to collectively make a difference at both the local and national levels. We are calling on everyone to help us seize this current moment to deepen our understanding of whole health, what drives it, and how we can make it better, he continued. Only then will we be able to address health challenges and strengthen the system for generations to come. Felix wholly supports the sentiment. She said she believes opening up these pointed discussions will help people better understand that even though there are disparities, recognizing these social drivers can lead to necessary change. And if nothing else, people will know that they are not alone in their experiences. Going through certain things and hearing other people's stories made me feel like I wasn't alone, Felix said. When you go through something that's really traumatic, you can feel like you're the only one and just hearing that other people have been through something similar gives you strength. I hope that just using my platform that I'm able to do it as well. According to Anthem, the What's Driving Our Health study was conducted among a nationally representative sample of 5,000 U.S. adults above the age of 18. Participant data was collected via a 25-minute online survey. The margin of error for the national sample is plus or minus 1.4%, points at the 95% confidence level. 
The sample is nationally representative according to the U.S. Census on overall age, gender, region, urban, rural, and ethnicity and race. This article was titled, I Think I Had Almost Taken My Health for Granted, Track and Field Star, Allison Felix, Raises Awareness About What's Driving Our Health, by Leslie D. Rose, Lavity News, November 9th, 2021. The next article is titled, Will Smith Gifted Cash Bonuses to King Richard Castmates by Biba, B-I-B-A, Adams, The Grio, November 9th, 2021. The star of the upcoming King Richard gifted castmates bonuses after learning that Warner Brothers had changed the distribution plans of the film. Will Smith personally wrote checks to several members of the cast he led, including actress Sania Sidney, S-A-N-I-Y-Y-A, and Demi Singleton, who play tennis-playing sisters Venus and Serena Williams, respectively. He also gave gifts to co-stars Tony Goldwyn, John Bernthal, and Anna J. Ellis, among others, according to The Hollywood Reporter, THR. THR noted that the bonuses were given as compensation for the pivot to simultaneous HBO Max release strategy. King Richard will be released in theaters and HBO Max next Friday, November 19th, a move that could result in lowered residual payments for Smith's co-stars, while he is reportedly taking home as much as $40 million. Smith's young co-stars have repeatedly praised him for his generosity and demeanor. Being on set with him was an absolute blast, Singleton told L. Women. He made sure that everyone felt comfortable and safe and had a great time. It was never a dull moment, ever, added Sidney. He made sure that everyone felt included and felt the love. He has such a big heart. In a recent interview, Serena Williams said no word describes it better than surreal of seeing Smith become her father for the role and witnessing the talented young actress portray her and her older sibling. Just to see these incredible actresses and everyone behind it, just putting this all together about our dad's journey, but because of myself and my sister, it's like, wow, really? Are we really something? Then to have Will play this role as my father, she added, and the way he just embodied Richard Williams, it just took the whole film to a whole new level. It's so emotional, it's well done, and it's a brilliant Piece of work. Tennis 365 noted that both young women underwent vigorous tennis training to play the characters of the two tennis champs. The left-handed Sydney had to learn to play with her right. Another co-star, Layla Crawford, said Smith gave the cast different treats all the time. He's such a generous and sweet person, Crawford declared. He also gave us iPhone 12 Pro Max gifts in boxes. We ripped them open and everyone started crying. I literally cried my eyes out. It was the best gift ever. Goldwyn, best known for his role of President Fitzgerald Grant III, the fictional U.S. president, 
from the Carrie Washington-helmed ABC series, Scandal, also told Access Hollywood about Smith's legendary generosity. I've been doing this for over 30 years. I have never worked with anyone as generous as Will, said Goldwyn. When you said he gave bonuses, gifts to all the talent, it's true. When Warner Brothers decided not to release it, to put it out on streaming, there was a lot of controversy, as people know. And we just got a call from Will saying, I'm going to make this right. I've never experienced it. I was floored. I just couldn't believe it. As previously reported, in addition to starring in the biopic of Richard Williams, the father of Williams' sister, Smith releases his highly anticipated memoir, Will, today. This article is titled, Will Smith Gifted Cash Bonuses to King Richard Castmates by Biba Adams, The Griot, November 9th, 2021. The next article is titled, Marcus Jones Named First President at Louisiana's Northwestern State by the Associated Press, The Griot, November 9th, 2021. Marcus Jones was unanimously selected Monday as the 20th president for the Natchitoches School and its more than 10,000 students by the University of Louisiana Systems Board Supervisors. Marcus is an authentic leader of character, integrity, and vision. His familiarity with the community, his passion for student success, and his commitment to excellence will advance our alma mater for the next generation, UL System President Jim Henderson said in a statement. Jones has worked at Northwestern for 23 years as a professor of business law and an international business vice president for university affairs and executive vice president for university and business affairs. Most recently, he's been interim president since July. Northwestern is home to me. I know Northwestern, and Northwestern knows me, Jones said in a statement. A native of Winfield, Jones was one of two finalists chosen by the Presidential Search Committee. He has an undergraduate degree from Northwestern, a master's degree from Grambling State University, and a law degree from Southern University. Mr. Jones is a testament to Louisiana's higher education institution. Mr. Jones has served the NSU community for many years, and I have no doubt he will continue to succeed in his new role. Governor John Bell Edwards said in a statement congratulating the new president. This article is titled, Marcus Jones, named first president at Louisiana's Northwestern State by the Associated Press and the Griot, November 9th, 2021. The next article is titled, New York Parents Develop App to Help Search for Missing People of Color by Emile Fleming, F-L-E-M-M-O-N, Blavity News, November 9th, 2021. While the disappearance of white women continues to receive national coverage, People of color have a harder time obtaining such attention. A group of New York parents has decided to take matters into their own hands by creating a mobile app in search of missing children. Al Gulf, 
reports, A-L-G-U-L-F. The group is paving a way for families to utilize tools that assist in the search of their loved ones by offering the 911missing.org app. Its development is in direct response to the lack of media coverage for missing people of color and law enforcement's apparent lack of urgency to find them. Rose Cobo, C-O-B-O, whose daughter, Chelsea Cobo, went missing five years ago, understands the way technology could aid in finding missing people. We are developing an app for smartphones, Rose said, at a Manhattan vigil Saturday evening. That thing that everyone has connected to them is going to be our power now. Chelsea has yet to be found, and her mom's frustration, along with other parents' frustration, stems from seeing the minimal visibility missing children of color receive from national and local media coverage. Joining other parents and supporters outside of New York City Hall, Rose emphasized the importance of bringing attention to the ongoing issue. Missing people, let's face it, the statistics are out of control, she said. I understand the pain. We all understand the pain. Rose said that she hopes that 911missing.org will become a productive measure to combat the disappearance of children and will show why victims of color are equally important to their white counterparts. The app is in its early stage of development and is currently accepting donations in support of its completion. Derricka Wilson, D-E-R-R-I-C-A, co-founder and CEO of Black and Missing Foundation, Inc., emphasized the need for the app. No one could name one missing woman of color who has bubbled up on national news. Not one, she said, according to The Guardian. Can you name one? Earlier this year, Jelani, J-E-L-A-N-I, Day's mother, Carmen Bolden Day, made an appearance on Good Morning America, where she too pleaded for answers in the search of her missing son, as Blavity previously reported. Jelani did not disappear into thin air, she said. His body would later be found in Peru, Illinois. According to the FBI's National Crime Information Center, 45% of over 89,000 active missing persons cases at the end of 2020 were people of color. This article is titled, New York Parents Develop App to Search for Missing People of Color by Emile Fleming, Blavity News, November 9, 2021. The next article is titled, Public Health Leaders Hope Stories About Long COVID Will Motivate More Young People to Get Vaccinated by Jen Christensen, CNN, November 16, 2021. Caitlin Van Dyke was on winter break in January visiting her boyfriend's family when she got sick with COVID-19. For the 20-year-old computer science major at the University of Missouri, COVID-19 has been anything but a brief or easy illness. Some 10 months later, she says she's still out of breath just walking up the stairs of her dorm, an unexpected turn for someone who played on the varsity soccer team in high school. She says her brain is still so foggy 
She has trouble processing information and has to write everything on post-it notes or she'll forget it. She can't even remember the first date she had with her boyfriend. Even though I can see that they happened and I can hear about them, she says through tears looking straight into the camera, I can't get those back. Van Dyke shares her emotional story in a new ad campaign released Tuesday as part of the Voices of Long COVID campaign, an effort from Resolve to Save Lives, an initiative from the Global Health Organization, Vital Strategies. Van Dyke is one of three people in their 20s who share their long COVID struggles, the ad several in English and one in Spanish. For some people, the ads may be the first time they hear about long COVID, a condition with a wide range of new or ongoing health problems that can appear regardless of how sick a person is with their initial COVID-19 infection. Public health leaders hope people, particularly young people, will hear these stories and get vaccinated. Young people are among some of the least vaccinated people in the United States. Surveys from earlier this year found that some younger people hadn't got the vaccine because they haven't gotten around to it yet. Some thought others needed it more than they did. Telling people about the potential long-term consequences, COVID-19, may be the exact motivation they need to get protected. We basically looked at what has been effective in public health campaigns, and what we find is generally it's not telling people they're going to die. It's generally people seeing the stories of real-life people whose lives are negatively impacted, who have a significant disability from the condition, said Tom Frieden, F-R-E-D-E-N, the former director of the U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, and now the president and CEO of Resolve to Save Lives. Those real-life stories are convincing because they are real-life stories. Ads that expose a person to something that sounds scary can work, studies show. One study looking at fear appeals, as they are called in the literature, that when used judiciously, fear appeals are effective at positively influencing attitude, intention, and behaviors. There are very few circumstances under which they are not effective, and there are no identified circumstances under which they backfire, according to a 2015 study. Similar public health campaigns that explain the consequences of risky health behavior have been used to prevent HIV infection and to encourage people to stop smoking. Scientists can't predict who will get long COVID, but think more than half of those who survive COVID-19 have some lingering psychological or physical health problems for six months or more after they recover from their initial bout of illness, according to a study published in JAMA Network Open. So far, there is no cure, and it's unclear how long people will have symptoms. The unknowns are part of what bothers Rob Smith, a 22-year-old featured in one of the ads in which he says he struggles with brain fog and doesn't even have the energy to see his friends. It makes them feel like I don't want to see them or I'm angry at them, he said in the ad. 
I don't know what's really going on with me or if I will ever recover or if anyone even cares if I recover. I don't know. Isaiah Smith, a 26-year-old U.S. Air Force veteran and part-time student, caught COVID-19 more than a year ago, still can't lift anything over five pounds. This has honestly been a very scary journey, he says in the ad. How can I adjust my life for this? The campaign will target states and cities with low vaccination rates, including Ohio, Tennessee, North Carolina, Montana, Missouri, Indiana, Alabama, and Louisiana. Allison Neal, N-E-E-L, Director of Communications at Louisiana Department of Health, says she's happy to add the ads to a rotation of spots that feature personal stories that the state is running on several platforms. People want to hear from people who look like them and who have similar backgrounds, everyday people, Neil said. Young people especially don't want to hear this from elected officials. We're humble enough at the Louisiana Department of Health to know that we're not always the right messenger. People can't get vaccinated soon enough, she says. About 280,000 18 to 29-year-olds have gone sleeves up already in Louisiana. It's good news, but we need that to be higher, Neil said. She said at least 105 18 to 29-year-olds in Louisiana have died from COVID-19 since the start of the pandemic. Even one of those deaths is too many, but 105 deaths is a lot, a lot of preventable deaths. We want to make sure young people know whether it's long COVID or a more severe outcome, no one is immune to COVID and its impact. This article is titled, Public Health Leaders Hope Stories About Long COVID Will Motivate More Young People to Get Vaccinated by Jen Christensen, CNN, November 16th, 2021. The next article is titled, My Health Has Been a Hot Topic, says Wendy Williams, giving an update on her recovery by Maisha Kai, M-A-I-Y-S-H-A-K-A-I, The Root, November 9th, 2021. Seven weeks after the start of the Wendy Williams Show's 13th season, how's she doing? Well, Wendy Williams says her journey to health and back to the famed purple chair on her talk show is taking longer than we expected. As The Root reported last month, Williams was initially due to start the season on September 20th. Instead, as guest hosts continue to fill her seat this week, she gave an online update about her health issues, which included a reported breakthrough COVID-19 diagnosis just days before the season was scheduled to begin. How you doing? I miss you all. As everyone knows, my health has been a hot topic. The 57-year-old media maven wrote in an Instagram post, I'm making progress, but it's just one of those things that's taking longer than we expected. I'm a woman of a certain age, and I know enough to listen to my doctors, and I will return to my purple chair as soon as we all agree I'm ready. After thanking her production company and roster of guest hosts, Williams added, Most of all, I want to thank my fans. I have heard your prayers and comments and feel all the love. 
you are everything to me. I love spending my mornings with you all, and I'm doing everything I can to get back to work. But right now, Wendy has to focus on Wendy. I love you for watching, she concluded. In Wendy's purple chair, the past few weeks have been an eclectic cast of guest hosts, including Jerry Springer, Sherry Shepard, Whitney Cummings, Lee Remini, and this week, Michael Rappaport. We wish Wendy all the best in her healing. This article is titled, My Health Has Been a Hot Topic, says Wendy Williams, giving an update on her recovery by Maisha Kai, The Root, November 9th, 2021. The next article is titled, Caught on Video, Tennessee Pastor Tackles and Disarms Gunmen in Church Service by Rachel Pilgrim, The Root, November 9th, 2021. When Pastor Ezekiel Indukumana, N-D-I-K-U-M-A-N-A, immigrated from Burundi in East Africa, surely the last thing on his agenda was stopping another church shooting at the pastor of the Nashville Light Mission Pentecostal Church of Tennessee. In the States, black churches are too often the sites of tragedy, but thanks to the pastor's quick thinking on Sunday, 26-year-old Desiree Baganda was stopped from harming over 60 parishioners in the service that day. Now authorities and congregants alike are calling the pastor a hero. Indikumana hasn't made any public statements. Here's more from NBC News. Desiree Baganda, 26, was sitting at the front of Sunday service at the Nashville Light Mission Pentecostal Church when he suddenly pulled out a gun and walked up to the altar where the pastor was praying with several members, according to the Metropolitan Nashville Police Department. He waved his gun around and told everyone to get up and pointed the handgun at the congregation, police said. Harrowing surveillance video from the incident appears to show the suspect wave the gun in his hand facing the worshipers. The pastor tackled the suspect from behind and brought him to the ground, according to the footage. Some shocked church attendees ran out of the church upon seeing the pastor spring into action. Others helped disarm Baganda before any shots were fired and kept him pinned to the ground until officers arrived to the scene, police said. According to USA Today, Baganda told police he was Jesus while he was being taken into custody and that all churches and schools need to be shot up. He had attended Nashville Light Mission before, but never became a member. Baganda is currently charged with 15 counts of felony, aggravated assault, and the Metropolitan Nashville Police Department says that more charges may be coming. God was taking care of me and everyone else in the building, said Nzojibugami Noi, N-Z-O-J-I-B-U-G-A-M-I. Noe, N-O-E, a choir member who sat in the front row, according to USA Today. This article is titled, Caught on Video, Tennessee Pastor Tackles and Disarms Gunmen in Church Service by Rachel Pilgrim, The Root, November 9th, 2021. The next article is titled, World Para Powerlifting 
sends condolences to the death of Paul Kende, K-E-H-I-N-D-E, November 19, 2021. World para powerlifting is saddened by the news of the passing of Nigerian athlete Paul Kende, K-E-H-I-N-D-E. Kende died on Thursday, November 18th, in his home country at the age of 33. He made his international debut in 2010 and won his first major title at the Glasgow 2014 Commonwealth Games. Kende became Paralympic champion at Rio 2016 in the men's up to 65 kg category and took the world title in the same event at the Mexico City 2017 World Championship. The Nigerian still holds the world record 221 kg in the men's up to 65 kg set at the Dubai 2018 World Cup. World Para Powerlifting shares its condolences with the family of Paul Kende, the National Paralympic Committee of Nigeria, and the Para Powerlifting community in the country. This article is titled World Para Powerlifting Sends Condolences for Death of Paul Kende by Paralympic.org, November 19, 2021. That's all the time we have for the African American Hour. My name is Rosemary Ankwe. Thanks for joining me.